again, zoom out. How do you make these regions of the brain bigger and able to actually do more? By thinking about fucking nothing. Nothing. That's the part that's crazy. All right, Nick. So we have meditation up to the batter's box. So let's jump into what is it? Um, meditation has been considered a number of different things. And I don't know about you, but it, it seems like trying to get one straight answer. It just, I can't get one, but the best one that I've been able to find is that it is a type of mind body complementary medicine. And the key there as everybody can pick up is medicine because I truly believe that. And some of the data is even showing that as well. When you look at some medical conditions, a couple of the most known, and again, this is just a few because there's a laundry list of how many different ones. And the key here is what stress can do to actually progress these conditions. And meditation has been shown to actually reduce anxiety uh, in terms of cancer it's, it's been linked to helping with regression, regression of that, uh, depression, chronic pain, even irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, and I feel bad for whatever bastard has that, but you know, this is, this is the podcast for you to figure out and actually make time, time to, to do it. On the <laughs> <laughs> so, and what I, you know, when, when we look at like what it's, we typically don't talk about things like when it was discovered. But I think it's important to note that what I've been able to find in this, and by the way, that was from the Mayo Clinic. Um, this is from Psychology Today that I'm about to go over, which is where meditation was discovered or when it was discovered, rather, which is somewhere between 5,000 to 3,500 uh, 3, BC. Um, I'm not sure if your notes had the same thing, but it was linked to um, – Ancient China, ancient Egypt, uh, and a lot of religions too, not just Buddhism, where meditation was really, you know, really prominent in what we typically know today where meditation comes from. Yeah, absolutely. I think there, it certainly came from Eastern traditions and a lot of, you know, Eastern medicine, but I think it's important to realize that, you know, forms of meditation are around in, in pretty much every religion in some way, shape or form. That's right. No, that, that's that's definitely right. So, you know, with that being said, I mean, that's just a high level overview of of what it is. Uh, I want to I want to sit back and let you nerd out on exactly oh, the science behind this. So before I nerd out on the science, I want to go through some common practices of meditation that I think most are probably aware of, but important to designate. So meditation, a lot of people think that it's simply thinking about nothing, which it is. That is certainly a large component of it, clearing your mind, calming your mind, you know, trying to focus on nothing. But there's different ways that you can do that. Um, one being focusing on your breathing, just counting the number of breaths you do is a great way to give yourself some menial tasks to occupy your mind uh, outside of your thoughts. Some people focus on what they call the third eye, literally in their forehead. Um, Andrew Huberman talks about this on his podcast, 92, I believe, about meditation, how some people focus on 
a sensation there and really try to feel something in the brain, which is crazy because the brain has no touch receptors. Like if you drilled into your brain, you wouldn't need anesthetic once you actually got to the brain. Um, and then other other ways, one uh, one common guru is Minger Rinpoche. Um, he talks a lot about meditating based on feeling. So going through different emotions and trying to envelop yourself in that emotion. So just curious if you have any other meditation practices or definitions that you can add because as you stated in the very beginning there are certainly no uh, congruent conclusions on what meditation is the the biggest one for me was always transcendental meditation where being able to take yourself out of the situation that you're in or not the situation i shouldn't say that I, there are there are uh, there is studies on you know taking yourself your basically your mind out of a current situation uh for instance one being a uh being research on um there was 11 this is back in 1987 where 11,000 inmates over the over 31 prisons they were being studied and every time that they were out those 11,000 that were out they were back in prison within the first month they took 2,400 inmates that were released in 1988 and fewer than 200 of them who were actively practicing meditation uh, returned to prison within that first month. And so when you think of a prison, the reason why I bring up transcendental meditation and taking yourself out of a current situation, there's no better practice than when you are in prison and you are in an eight by seven cell or maybe even smaller than that of taking yourself out of that. For me, there have been times where uh, it wouldn't be necessarily taking myself out of a situation as it is of of putting myself in a place that I want to be, putting myself into a, you know, taking myself to vacation, even though I've been working seven days a week. Um, that That is really the, to answer your question, is that, that has been the one that I have looked at the most and where I'm getting a lot of the, the studies from from my research. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly makes sense. Um, another great way to meditate, getting that out of body experience. And one practice that I know we've both adopted and I copied from you five, six years ago was sensory deprivation tanks as well. Fantastic place to meditate. Highly recommend them. We will certainly do an entire podcast episode on them. But just to give our listeners an idea of flotation tank, there are many of them across the United States. You go and basically lay in a hyper-concentrated salt water tank with so much salt that you float. The water is the exact same temperature as your body. You wear earplugs, and it is completely sealed to light. So you have n access to none of your senses, and it truly is amazing how out of body that can, that can be um, and how well meditation works in that environment. Truly out-of-body experience. Yeah, I mean, as somebody, I was just telling you about that. Like, I, I literally just took one, and and now I'm starting to build upon that. But yeah, in that situation, it it, it allows me in that particular situation to have a bit of a different a different type of meditation, um, only because you're constantly you're constantly moving. And again, we're going to do a whole episode on this. You know, one thing that I didn't get a chance to, and I, I'm curious if you were able to, but we think of posture and particular postures within meditation. 
And I don't know about you. Maybe it's also because I just have incredibly tight hip flexors, but it's like, you are not going to catch me meditating cross leg. You know, it's just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to have that. Um, but you know, when we look at meditation as a whole, whether it's transcendental or, um, you know, you're, you're sitting there just being mindful. Um, that is one thing that I didn't get around to in terms of the research that I would certainly love to dive a bit, bit more deeper in. Absolutely. And there are certainly varying levels to it. Um, but as a nice segue into the science part, we know so little about the brain and meditation in general. Um, again, I'm about to go through an explanation of kind of how meditation works and the various you know, processes within the brain that are affected by it. Um, but one thing I hope that is gleaned from what I'm saying here is how new this brain research is and how little we know about it and its long-term effects and everything like that. Um, again, I was a, a neurochemistry major at the University of North Carolina. It was very privileged to do research for four years um, under Mark Whiteman, who did some groundbreaking research on, uh, on cocaine and the dopamine system. And it just fascinated me to no end. I learned so many interesting things in my four years in that lab. But the most interesting thing I learned was how little we know about the brain and its mechanisms. So uh, as a, again, overall overview, the th mental conditions that meditation can help with stress and anxiety, sleep and attention and focus. And it's actually very interesting, but meditation, um, I'm going to go through the parts of the brain that are, are active in it and also what parts of the brain change once you've adopted a meditation practice. Now, caveat, I'm not going to differentiate between different types of meditation or different lengths. All of these research studies had their own protocols on, on meditation, but long story short, people were meditating in them, and these are some of the changes that they saw. There were two main areas of the brain that they saw uh, change in. Um, the first is the hippocampus. Hippocampus is known as you know, being involved in memory. Um, this makes a lot of sense to me as you're thinking about nothing, you're, you know, and you get rid of your initial thoughts of that day, you start going into your past and your history, kind of bringing that stuff up. Um, Anna Lardone in 2018 showed uh, increased hippocampal size of people who meditated frequently, meaning that their hippocampus was, you know, physiologically larger and also better memory and retention. So that was very interesting to see, uh, but by far the more interesting part of meditation is concerned with what's called the default mode network, the default mode network. And the way this was discovered, this is basically what your brain is doing when you're doing nothing. This was defined and the definition is still being argued amongst neuroscientists, uh, but this was defined once we got these you know, really fantastic uh, F functional magnetic resonance imaging fMRI machines, and they laid people in them and were doing a bunch of research on, you know, they'd flash a happy image and record and figure out which areas of the brain were associated with happy. Um, for the default mode network, they put people in the fMRI machine and said, think about nothing. They gave them no prompts. They didn't tell them to meditate. They just said, do nothing. Stare at the size of the thing and don't think about anything. And scientists learned that there's this thing called the default mode network. It's a, a few different regions of the brain that are interconnected and most active when you are thinking about 
nothing. Um, it's the, again, just for a few of the, the main regions of it, the medial prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulate cortex, and the inferior parietal lobe. Um, three areas of the brain that, again, are active when you're thinking about nothing. Um, why is this important? Well, Brewer in 2011 showed that there was connectivity between those three regions when people were thinking about nothing, but also that less activity in those areas meant that people were happier. So people who suffer from depression, anxiety, and that those types of, of mental burdens had a much more heightened activity in the default mode network, which suggests, again, this has something to do with, you know, racing internal thoughts. In the case of depression, certainly could be you know, negative thoughts, bipolar disorder. You know, these, these are the areas in your brain that are, again, your internal, internal track when you're deep in thought within yourself. So it makes a lot of sense that people who have that part of the brain running in overdrive uh, may have some issues. Um, Mm. How does go ahead? No, I was I was going to say so. From a science with your science background, where do you think the biggest debate is coming from? Like, why are these scientists, if they're able to see something, if they're able to actually they they've done studies on this? Where is the where is the argument? Because the brain is incredibly hard to study outside of the human. Muscles, we can grow them in labs. We can grow whole organs in labs, and there's no questioning them because you can slice and dice them in every single possible way, right? Think about, you know, arm, you know, leg, heart, you can grow anything like that. How are you going to experiment on a human brain that is functioning? You got cadavers, um, but aside from that, you know, to really see, we, we have all these, you know, imaging studies. But imaging studies show like cerebral blood flow is a great example. It shows what region of the brain has more blood going to it, which is typically associated with activity, but it doesn't mean everything. There might be more blood flow going to one region of the brain, you know, but part of that subregion it's being diverted to, and we, we just don't have the, the imaging techniques to see that deep in. The type of techniques that you need in order to figure out everything are all very invasive. The studies that I did all involved drilling into the skull of a rat and putting a electrode, um, a four-barreled iontophoresis electrode that delivered drugs inside of the actual brain of the rat. So what we would do is we would put medicine and you know different neurotransmitters directly into a region of the brain and then read the neuron firing that then ensued to figure out how those different pharmacological agents interacted with that region. Again, the species of rat, rat we chose was one of the more similar to humans. They were also fucking huge rats as a result. Uh, but again, think about how you could ever do a experiment like that on a human, which still has a brain that's vastly different in any sort of ethical way. Mm. You know, going back to your comment on just where the activity, the, the more activity, the less activity, the happier that they were. And it just makes me think, and again, there's probably a podcast down the road that we probably do when you think of social media, but it's like, we are constantly on the go. And so when you look at some of the, some of the medical conditions that I mentioned before of anxiety, depression, 
all these other things that are stress, stress progresses. It's like, we're, we're on the go constantly. Like we never have a break, uh, which, which makes meditation that much more important, which concerns me because it's not talked about nearly as much as it should. Exactly. It's, it's something that I don't think many are, you know, nearly aware enough about, but anyway, back to the topic. Um, so how does this play into meditation, right? We've got this default mode network, um, that exists and in people who are unhappy, it's more active and people who are you know, more mentally healthy, it is less active. So meditation has been widely shown to decrease the activity in the default mode network. Um, again, Kang references this in his paper from 2013 um, as part of a more interesting piece of that paper that I'll get to. Uh, again, this makes perfect sense when we zoom out and think about it, right? The meditation is a calming of your mind and it makes sense that it would affect these regions the most because these are the regions that are active when you're thinking about nothing. Now, why do we care about that? Well, when Again, Kang showed this in 2013, um, and Brewer showed this. So Brewer in 2011 showed that these brain regions are interconnected, and then Kang showed that in 2013, two years later, not only are they interconnected, but that a meditation practice will increase the cortical thickness of these regions of the default mode network. Again, medial prefrontal cortex, posterior cingulate cortex, and inferior parietal lobe. Kang showed that the cortical thickness of these regions increased with meditation. What is cortical thickness? Cortical thickness is how thick the cortex is of that region of the brain. What is the cortex? The cortex is what's commonly known as gray matter in the brain that houses most of your neurons um, and synapses. The white matter of the brain contains myelinated axons that are more involved with the interconnectivity between different regions of the brain. Um, they're so-called because, you know, not really in real life, but when prepared to look at in a lab, uh, the gray matter is a slight shade of gray. The white matter is white-ish, but in reality, they are just different tones of beige. Uh, but Kang showed that in people who meditate frequently, their level of cortical thickness in these regions is increased, meaning they have more neurons in these regions. These parts of the brain literally grow more neurons. And again, increases in gray matter are associated with, you know, the ability to process emotion, the ability to think. All your higher level functions are, are all related to, you know, the gray matter and the different cortexes of the brain, or most, I should say, you can't ever use definites when talking about the brain. Um, so these regions of the brain of the default mode network grow larger with more neurons, and therefore are more capable and able to do more. But again, zoom out, how do you make these regions of the brain bigger and able to actually do more? By thinking about fucking nothing, nothing. <laughs> that's the part that's crazy. You know, my logic, or I think most people's logic would make sense. It's like, oh, you know, cab drivers are shown to have larger hippocampus in the, you know, spatial area because uh, they can remember streets like nobody else. Or if you play chess, that region of your brain will grow. But think about what I'm saying. I'm saying that getting into a practice about thinking about nothing will increase the neuron, the, the gray matter, the actual physical brain in the regions of the brain that are active when thinking about nothing. And this increase in brain size means that you are more able to lessen 
the activity in these regions of the brain overall, which then leads to increased happiness, stress and anxiety management, better sleep, and the whole host of um, benefits from meditation. Are you with me? Check me. <laughs> no, no. I mean, again, it's it's literally less is more. Less is more. And then there was a random thought. It's hard not to have some random thoughts out there, but it's like you look at what Stephen Hawkins had by far the most gray matter, at least at the time. Maybe that's changed. And, you know, he was he was bound to a chair, probably not a whole lot he could really he could really do. But it's like I wonder like I wonder before the disease, um, you know, like where where it was at. And then I, I would just always like wonder, I would wonder about like where that played a factor for somebody like that or really anybody. I just don't think that there's enough, enough people that have been documented in terms of the increase in gray matter, but we have a simple formula to increase it. Exactly. Think about nothing. Think about nothing. Um, and this has wide ranging effects again, from the, you know, the commonly known benefits of meditating, stress, anxiety, sleep, attention, and focus. But on top of that, um, in 2019, Ramirez Barantes showed how the lessened activation of the default mode network and, you know, the, this meditation practice actually helps with aging as well. Um, so you know, being able to have that lower activity and increasing the gray matter, which is commonly known as a way to fight, um, you know, age-related illnesses of the brain. Um, again, meditation can also protect you like, from neurological harm that exists as a normal part of the aging process. And of course, from the Lardone paper we mentioned in 2018, in the hippocampus, people who meditate have larger. Again, that's the region in the brain reserved for memory. But again, pointing out the dates of these, right? Ramirez Barantes in 2019, 2018, we're not talking in the 1960s. This research is still very new and we are still figuring out a lot of this. And so uh, obviously I feel like this is like a really good segue of, all right, now that we know doing nothing is what we need to be doing at some part of the day, it's all right. So how do we, how do we build this into our, our day to day? Yes. Right. And so, you know, there was a study in 2018 by the Behavioral Brain Research that said meditating for 13 minutes a day for eight weeks led to decreased negative mood state, enhanced attention, working memory, um, recognition memory, and decreased state of anxiety. All of the things that we have mentioned, what it's not being mentioned is that you are decreasing you know, in terms of your age. It is slowing down the aging process. It is increasing your gray matter. And so I don't know though, when you, when you sit down though, at least for me, early on, two minutes almost feels like an eternity because we're just so hardwired to just keep moving, keep moving, keep thinking. And so, uh, you know, some, what, what they're aiming to and for a beginner is just try for five minutes a day. And I would even say scale that back if you find that five minutes a day. And for me, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, of you always have you always have thoughts popping up. For me, what's always been helpful is I think of those thoughts almost as bubbles. And then it's, all right, let it become present, pop, let it get going. Up, pop, let it keep going. And I'm, I'd be curious to know how, like how you've, how you think about that and maybe yours is a bit different maybe it's like actually being present in the thought 
for me, I try to let it be there, but then quickly push it out. Yeah, absolutely. I, one metaphor that's helped me a lot is, you know, you're going to be interrupted by thought when you're meditating, but to not get upset at those thoughts, more view it like your thoughts are cars racing on a highway and you're sitting on a hill kind of watching them go by every now and again, one of them's going to honk and get your attention, but it doesn't mean you're not still on a hill watching them go by. Mm, I liked, I like that a lot. Um, and so we've talked about the science of it. We know what it is. Um, talking about the practice and, and obviously I think that it's, it's all situational. And one, one piece that I wasn't able to get to is whether doing something in the morning or later at night has any bearing or if there's any difference. Uh, for instance, if you haven't listened to our cold plunge, um, uh, podcast when you when you find out of doing a cold plunge first thing in the morning especially before you before you work out um, has increased benefits uh, meditation just at a at a zoomed out level I would say that if you can get it in it's just important to get it in at some point in your day um, and we also have to look at this right we also not to keep name dropping uh, name dropping our podcast but uh, for the sauna right? One thing that you mentioned, Nick, was that hitting the sauna is basically it's it's weight training for your cardiovascular system. This is you have to work this as a muscle as well, right? It's not just I'm going to meditate and all of these benefits are going to happen. This is you have to be very consistent, and the more consistent you are, the easier you're able to. Uh, slip into a meditative state and you're able to get the benefits that we've been talking about uh, today on this podcast. Exactly. And for those first starting the meditation practice, again, you're not going to quote unquote feel it for a while. It takes a little bit before you can, uh, but once you are in the practice or do it enough, or for me, when I come fresh off the float tank for the days following, I, I can snap in, snap into that meditative mode much more quickly. And I think one thing important for everybody to remember is to try to build it into your day as part of other habits. Again, book Atomic Habits references habit stacking, a commonly known thing. I think that is an incredibly powerful way to build it into your day. Um, again, Bruce just mentioned the sauna. That's uh, certainly an area where I will meditate. Um, laying in bed at night, my aunt for Christmas got me a weighted eye blanket. You put it over your eyes, and it sounds really dumb, but that stops me from checking my phone and interrupting my thought every three minutes because to do it, I'd have to move this thing off my face. Again, um, that's also part of the falling asleep. The meditation just also turns in a way to you know, improve your sleep habits. Um, so certainly another way you can do it. In the car, um, I've stopped listening to music whatsoever on my car rides and just will meditate for a minute or two at a stoplight. Um, really puts it into a different perspective if there's a huge traffic jam. I don't view it as, oh, this sucks and is impeding me. I view it as, oh, this is great. I have more time to meditate. Um, which as somebody who enjoys driving quickly is a very important mechanism for me. Um, and, and, you know, you just got to see where you can, you know, build it into your life. But hopefully, you know, folks are able to take time during the weekend or whatnot to, to set aside an hour for it or, you know, more time or maybe try out a float tank or something like that. But like you said, as long as you're, you're building it into your routine or trying to get some of it in, you are, you are certainly leading yourself to some benefit. Yeah, so everyone start off small, build up, 
stay consistent. That's the most important piece. And, you know, these benefits are, uh, these benefits are, I won't say long, you know, everlasting. Um, However, you know, if you can have something, if you could have this in a pill form, it would be the fastest selling drug, right? Goes back to the, the other podcast that we've had, right? The benefits of this, if it was a drug on the shelf, it would sell out in minutes. So uh, make time for it, stay consistent. And um, yeah, and so yeah. many people already make time for taking care of their physical health in some way, shape, or form, right? Running, playing sports with friends, you know, doing something of that nature. But I think where the, the narrative really needs to change or hopefully steers more in the direction of is taking care of your brain as well not just mental health from a you know emotional health standpoint that's its own separate thing but from a longevity standpoint right if you mm. could choose between meditating and increasing these areas in the brain or working out your body like it may be more important to do meditation if you were just picking one over the other as a grandfather who's suffering from alzheimer's 92 years old but still physically more or less still healthy. Um, you know, I can, I can tell you from personal experience and I'm sure as many can relate, um, you know, having mental and physical health or the longevity of both is paramount. They work together. You can't have one well without the other. I'm, I'm, I'm very, we can edit this out if we will, if we want to, but I, it's like it's like Jaeger bombs, right? There's nothing worse than being jacked up on Red Bull and blacked out. That's exactly what you're looking at. You're looking at when you're in your 80s and 90s if you don't fucking meditate. <laughs> I think my chemistry degree just fell off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh. a, re a relatable point. A relatable point. <laughs> We try to stay relatable, folks. Oh, God. <laughs> so um, that's all you walk away with today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I think uh, unless there's anything else, uh, Nick, I, I think we crushed it, and I think this is a excellent way to, to, to segue out. And Bruce, I'm, I'm pretty scared for you to open your mouth again, so I'm going to agree with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tune in next time. Next time, boy, we have a treat for you. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.